This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Part 2, The Foundations of Narrative Economics, Chapter 7, Causality and Constellations. The goal of this book is to improve people's ability to anticipate and deal with major economic events, such as depressions, recessions, or secular, that is long-term, stagnation, by encouraging them to identify and incorporate into their thinking the economic narratives that help to define these events. Before we can forecast reliably, we need some understanding of these events' as true ultimate causes. The key problem in determining what a cause the key problem is determining what is a cause versus what is a consequence. Though modern economists tend to be very attentive to causality, as a general rule, they do not attach any causal significance to the invention of new narratives. I want to argue here not only that causality exists, but that it goes both ways. New contagious narratives cause economic events, and economic events cause changed narratives. Of course, Almost nothing beyond spots on the sun is purely an outside influence on the economy. More on sunspots later in the chapter. But we can think of new narratives as causative innovations, because each narrative originates in the mind of a single individual, or as a collaboration among a few people. A economic historian Joel Mokir, 2016, calls such an individual a cultural entrepreneur, and he traces the concept back to philosopher and polymath David Hume, who wrote in, 19, sorry, in 1742, quote, What depends on a few persons is, in great measure, to be ascribed to chance, or secret and unknown causes. What arises from a great number may often be accounted for by determinate and known causes, end quote. Understanding the effects of the few persons who create contagious new narratives is essential to formulating the foundations of a theory of narrative economics. The effects of a few persons sometimes works through the creation of contagious new narratives. Though narratives are commonly connected with celebrities, the few persons who invent a contagious narrative are usually not famous, and often we will never know who they were. Later on, we can look for celebrities attached to them, but we will usually not find the authors. In this chapter, we will consider the causal elements that make economic narratives go viral, especially stories and storytelling, with the aim of developing a better understanding of these narratives' deep structure. Direction of Causality It is not easy to prove direction of causality between a narrative and the economy, for example, do the stories of successful speculators and wild enthusiasm for stocks that characterized the 1920s cause increased stock prices and increased corporate earnings? Or did those increased earnings cause the enthusiasm? Was the similar enthusiasm for Bitcoin after 2009 in any way responsible for the increase in Bitcoin's price? Or was Bitcoin's increased value just a logical reaction to news stories and new progress in the mathematical theory of cryptography. 
A problem in establishing direction of causality for major economic events is that economists usually cannot run controlled experiments that accurately simulate economic conditions at large. In contrast, laboratory scientists conduct random trials, perhaps by administering a drug test to an experimental group and a placebo to a control group and then using statistical analysis to determine whether the drug really causes patients to recover. The best economists can often do this. The best economists can often do is to look for events that might be deemed natural experiments. Henry Farnman, in his 1912 presidential address before the American Economic Association, addressed economists' inability to conduct controlled experiments, asserting nonetheless that the study of economic history can allow economists to incur causality because random shocks have occurred through history, as when governments embark on crazy economic policies. In fact, Farnham said, the economist is really fortunate in having experiments tried for him without expense. In their 1963 Monetary History of the United States, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz gave three examples of what they called quasi-controlled experiments to establish causal impact from monetary policy to the aggregate economy. The large gold discoveries of 1897 to 1914, which expanded the, mon the money supply, and the periods during and immediately after World Wars I and II. We can debate whether these events were truly random exogenous shocks, that is, not caused by the economy, but much more discussion on inferring direction of causality with economic data has taken place since 1963. The general conclusion is that it is indeed possible to infer causality even when controlled experiments are impossible. Important. Hmm. New narratives might be interpreted as exogenous, helping us identify additional quasi-controlled experiments. In fact, the gold discoveries and wars that Friedman and Schwartz emphasized likely were exogenous because they were made possible by innovations in popular narratives, such as gold rush stories or fake news about foreign conspiracy. We must be wary of many, but not all, economists' supposition that the causality always runs from economic events to narratives and not the other way around. There has been a lively debate about the impact of self-fulfilling prophecies in economics. Sociologist Robert Curtin, sorry, Robert Merton coined the phrase self-fulfilling prophecy in 1948, intending to apply the concept to economic fluctuations. The term often refers to prophecies stimulated by genuinely extraneous events, with the most popular example being sunspots, which are spots on the sun, which come and go through, some, through time and are observable through telescopes. The economist William Stanley Jevons proposed in 1878 that world economic fluctuations might be driven by periodic variation in the sun's rays, of which sunspots are a mere sign. If the heat coming from the sun is stronger in some years than in others, then crops and other economic output may be stronger in hotter years which may lead to major economic fluctuations. There was, by, by 1878, already astronomical evidence on solar activity, going back centuries, in the form of counts of sunspots through time. He thought he discerned a correlation between those sunspot counts and economic events. And the cause of this correlation had to be the sun, 
For there is no conceivable theory that causality could go the other way, from economic events on Earth to actions on the Sun. His theory sounded plausible, but subsequent economic research did not support it, and variations in solar output are too small to have any substantial such effect. Sunspots could hardly affect the economy, but they may do so if people mystically believe that they should, as economists David Cass and Carl Schell explained in 1983. Now, economists use the term sunspots to refer to any extraneous noise that affects the economy purely because people believe it will. Economist Roger Farmer has been a leader in the field of macroeconomic self-fulfilling prophecies. To his and others' work, I add the idea that these self-fulfilling prophecies do not come out of nowhere. Rather, they typically come from millions of mutations in narratives, of which a few are contagious enough in the current environment to become major epidemics. As we have seen, this process can be observed and modeled. Random events, birthdays, and anniversaries. How does a narrative become an economic narrative? Generally speaking, most people harbor vague fears and concerns stimulated by narratives, but these fears have little or no effect on their actions. The narratives become economic narratives when they involve stories in which others take action and describe the actions they take, such as investing in and getting rich in certain financial markets. Economic narratives thus tend to involve scripts, sequences of actions that one might take for no better reason than hearing narratives of other people doing these things. Trying to understand major economic events by looking only at data on changes in economic aggregates, such as gross domestic product, wage rates, interest rates, and tax rates, runs the risk of missing the underlying motivations for change. Doing so is like trying to understand a religious awakening by looking at the cost of printing religious tracts. But it is easy to see why economists often fall into this trap. Abundant data exists for GDP, wage rates, interest rates, and tax rates, but data on narratives are spotty at best. Economists may be falling into what historian Jerry Mueller calls the tyranny of metrics. Mueller is not opposed to providing quantitative indexes of important economic phenomena, but he does note that most people overreact to such indexes and fail to see that they are overestimating the importance of arbitrary quantifications that are really of limited value. The people who make economic decisions against a background of narratives do not usually explain their decisions. If asked to explain, they might be at a loss for words or try to talk like economists. How, for example, can someone explain the ultimate reasons why he or she hesitated to spend during a recession? Hesitation is not taking action and might be caused by an absence of any identifiable thought to take action amidst a large group of other thoughts. Contagious stories are largely creative and innovative, not simply a logical reaction to economic events. For example, major stock market corrections take place over many days, during which the public has plenty of time to read the sometimes creative and sensationalistic writing of the various news media, whose job is to attract attention. Over that time period, stock market participants take part in countless conversations that reinterpret the news in efforts not only to inform, but also to amuse. The process is in many ways a random event, 
like the mutation in a microbe such as a bacterium or virus. The celebrity, for example, may offhandedly voice a colorful phrase. That is what happened on October 15, 1929, two weeks before the 1929 crash, when the famous Professor Irving Fisher of Yale, in a speech before the Purchasing Agents Association of New York, said that the U.S. stock market had reached a, quote, permanently high plateau, end quote. The newspaper picked up that new colorful phrase over the next days. That spectacularly ill-timed and ironic phrase became an epidemic, probably affecting the duration of the market debacle, and it is still widely remembered today. In fact, those three words are more famous today than the title of any of the books that Fisher spent years writing. They are in the same league with other colorful phrases such as irrational exuberance and laugher curve. These words and their effects came from outside the economy, and they are therefore exogenous. Also, anniversaries of past events can resurrect economic narratives. Even though a narrative of years past, such as the 1987 stock market crash, has lost its contagion, it may still exist in the dim recesses of memory, for older people at least. But it has the potential to become contagious again, if it is tweaked and probably renamed and reattached to a human interest story. For example, the news media tend to remind the public about the 1987 crash on major anniversaries, and they will predictably continue to do so, until there is a bigger one-day crash. At that point, 1987 will no longer be the record holder, at which time it won't be of any interest at all. In two, by 2013, the Bitcoin narrative was also beginning to fade. It was an old story, and the price of a Bitcoin dropped from over 1,000 US dollars at its 2013 peak to just over 200 US dollars. But a proliferation of new inventions, or mutations, kept the idea alive. Notable among these inventions was the initial coin offering, ICO, which allowed new cryptocurrencies to be developed with distinctively different stories. These currencies were backed in effect, as shares of corporations. The ICO brought a flood of new narratives, each tied to a particular coin identified with some line of business. It brought, ba it brought back into public esteem the old sport of picking stocks, which had become somewhat tarnished as a fool's errand. There was something new to talk about. In 2017 alone, there were over 900 initial coin offerings for crowdfunded business startups that wanted to raise money for some new venture. Almost half of them failed within a year, but new ICOs kept on coming. Of course, economists are aware of the narratives associated with events, but mostly they work on the assumption that the narratives are nothing more than a bit of silliness that follows the discovery of changing real news about deep economic forces. The presumption is often that these deep economic forces are caused exclusively by scientific advances in production, discovery, or unexpected exhaustion of natural resources, demographic changes, or economic research that provides new information on how government policymakers can adopt better rules of action. But this mode of thinking misses what may be the essential elements that cause change in the economy. As we saw in part one, the economic narratives surrounding these events work in predictable ways. They are contagious. They suggest scripts for people to follow. They repeat their messages. 
and they thrive on human interest. In doing so, they affect society and, of course, economic activity in highly consequential ways. Controlled experiments from outside economics show direction of causality. While we may sometimes be able to infer direction of causality by studying economic history, we need also to recognize that controlled experiments outside of economics have shown narrative's effects on human behavior. In the field of marketing, Jennifer Edson Escalus notes, self-referencing occurs when the viewer of an advertisement relates a product to his or her personal experiences. But not all self-referencing is equally effective in changing buyer behavior. Using controlled experiments, Escalus has compared analytical self-referencing, an explanation of why you need the product, to narrative self-referencing and narrative transportation which presents a story that causes an individual to imagine himself or herself to be another person, using the word I rather than you. Escalas has found that the narrative transportation is more effective, especially when the analytical case for the product is weak. In journalism, Marcel Matchell and his co-authors, noting evidence that viewers of television news retain little of the news that they actually hear, presented an actual TV news report on the dangers of air pollution to a control group. They also presented a variation of the report to the experimental group in the form of a story, with a protagonist, a baker with health, with health problems caused by air pollution, in an unfair struggle against antagonists who benefited from the polluting activities. The experimental presentation of the news was retained better. In education, Scott McQuiggan and his co-authors have found motivational benefits of narrative-centered learning. Each 8th grade student in the experimental group played a virtual reality computer game in the role of the young boy Alex, whose father, in the fictitious story, is the head of a team of research scientists on Crystal Island. A mysterious, grave disease has afflicted some of the scientists, including Alex's father. Alex is determined to find out why. Playing the game involves interacting in dialogues with other simulated people. In the process, the student learns about microbiology, about bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites. The study documents an advantage in learning relative to the control group with regard to self-efficacy, present, interest, and perception of control. In health interventions, Michael Slater and his co-authors studied how to persuade people to eat more fruits and vegetables. They concluded from experiments that didactic presentations of evidence on nutrition were not effective. Audience response was stronger to narrative messages when the audience identified with persons portrayed in the message. In health interventions, these results underscore the need for carefully pre-testing the story and choosing the right persons to convey the message. In philanthropy, Keith Weber and his co-authors in 2006 asked subjects to read a message involving organ donations before asking them to sign an organ donor card. The content of the message, narrative versus statistics, was manipulated. Results indicated that narrative messages were more effective than statistical messages. In law, Brad Bell and Elizabeth Loftus, in 1985, conducted a controlled experiment in which subjects took on the role of jury members. 
The goal was to determine the jury members' response to vivid prosecutions, prosecutions and non-vivid prosecutions. For example, the vivid prosecution included the irrelevant line that the accused, at the time of a crime, accidentally, quote, knocked over a bowl of guacamole dip onto the white shag carpet, end quote. That irrelevant but vivid mental image helped obtain a conviction from the experimental jury. In sum, economics can learn from other social science, sciences, including psychology, especially social psychology, sociology, anthropology, especially cultural or historical anthropology, and history, especially cultural and intellectual history, or histoire de mentalities. Because control experiments about whole economies are not readily available to economists, it is all the more important that we specify and understand the building blocks of economic narratives. Stories are one key building block. The importance of stories driving human activity. Emotion matters in the form of narratives, economic and otherwise, and it, is re and it reveals itself in stories. The historical novel and historical movie stand outside of mainstream history, but they excel in helping us understand feelings in history and appreciate some of the narratives that drive history. The historical novelist or filmmaker who constructs dialogue based on imagination and the intuition that research has afforded looks more like an inventor than a scholar. Huh. In his 2013 presidential address before the American Historical Association, historian William Cronon compared scholarly research in history with the historical novel. Quote, historians choose not to represent aspects of the past about which our documents are silent, but some of these, stream of consciousness and informal conversations most obviously, are so fundamental to so much of life that it is a little hard to say which depiction of the past is more distorting, a history that says nothing about them, or a fiction that in the absence of authoritative evidence tries to represent these dialogues as responsibly as possible." End quote. There is thus a basic question about the primary metaphor that we use to understand an economic crisis. Dominating the discussion in popular media is the economy as sick or healthy person metaphor. The economy is described as healthy at some times, as sick at others, as if it needs a doctor who will administer the right kind of medicine, which is usually interpreted as fiscal or monetary policy. In keeping with the sickness health metaphor, the popular media often report on a thermometer called confidence, measured by confidence indexes or the stock market. The significance of human interest stories brings to mind the work of psychologist Robert Sternberg. In his book, Love is a Story, 1998, he describes healthy, loving relationships between two individuals as made possible by a narrative of their relationship. As in loving relationships, the progress of an economy is not one-dimensional. Rather, the story of the economy has dimensions beyond the public's perception of its health. The story has moral dimensions as well, involving attitudes of loyalty versus opportunism, of trust versus distrust, of cutting to the head of the line versus waiting politely. In addition, the story has dimensions of effect, of security versus insecurity, of inner direction versus public direction. 
the array of stories circulating at any point of time conveys all these dimensions. Flashbulb memory. In addition to having a story-like structure, our memories tend to focus on a few salient random images. Certain poignant narratives produce such a strong emotional reaction that people remember them years later. The narrative may have been transmitted to them only briefly and succinctly, among other, many other communications that are quickly forgotten. Why can such brief exposures to a narrative cause changes in economic behavior long afterward? When asked to describe their confidence or current motivations, people can sometimes remember and talk about a sudden change in their mental stance, suggesting a discrete and identifiable causal stimulus. In the extreme form, the establishment of a long-term memory may be so sudden as to be considered a flashbulb memory. The experience of a flashbulb memory is similar to the effect of an underexposed movie, filmed in darkness, illuminated for only an instant when a camera flashbulb went off. The flashbulb image may tell quite a story, suggesting an event with a reason, with surroundings and ambience. With many of our memories, we remember points in time, and we have some idea of context, but we cannot move away from the focused flashbulb memory. Psychologists have studied how the brain chooses which memories to give flashbulb status, analogous to choosing which photos to put in a family album. It turns out that flashbulb memories are connected not only to the emotions attached to the remembered event, but also to social, psychological factors. Memories that involve a shared identity with others, or that are rehearsed with others, are more likely to achieve flashbulb status. Thus, flashbulb memories are selected in a way that gives them a better chance to be involved in the formation of contagious narratives. For example, the narrative describing the first shots of the U.S. Civil War near Fort Sumter in 1861 was vividly remembered decades later. Thirty-five years after the event, the former U.S. First Sergeant described in great detail just what he was doing when, for the first time in his life, he was told he must lead his men on a mission that might get them killed. Quote, I was on duty as first sergeant of a company of 100 recruits, well instructed as, inf as infantry, on Governor's Island in the New York Harbor. We had just about got through with our holiday celebrations, which in antebellum days were made to last about 10 days in the army, and hearty celebrations they used to be. On Saturday, the 5th of, of January, I was engaged in having the quarters cleaned for the Orthodox Sunday morning inspection and contemplated having a quiet day and winding it up with a little more holiday celebration in the, in the evening when I was summoned to the adjutant's office where the sergeant major told me to have my company paraded at 2 p.m. in marching order for inspection. No use asking questions. The Japanese attack... Oh, sorry, end quote. The Japanese attack on the U.S. base in Pearl Harbor in 1941, which marked the beginning of U.S. involvement in World War II, is similarly described by powerful narratives that explain the commitment to fight the war. Forty years later, people still remembered when they first heard the Pearl Harbor news. Quote, Uni High classmate John Holmes still remembers precisely where he was and what he was doing. In those days, they sold newspapers on street corners. I was a paper boy selling the examiner at the corner of Pico and Prosser. I sold the paper that reported Pearl Harbor had been bombed. 
but I didn't realize what it meant, that it would change my life. I was too immature. Joe Arnold was working, too, at a gas station at Glendon and Londonbrook in Westwood. He said, it had a big tower. It was, that fo- it was foggy that day, and I climbed up to the top of the tower to see if I could see anything. I don't know what I expected to see. Barbara Ryan Dunham's memory is typical of that of many Americans. We were, told, we were at the breakfast table, she said. We had come home from church, and we had the radio on. Nobody could believe it at first. End quote. Flashbulb memory is one aspect of the human tendency to become motivated by seemingly random details of stories, even brief stories that are little more than anecdotes. In the above examples, the stories involved what happened just before or just after the shocking news, in the form of a sequence of mostly meaningless events. In comparison, if we were to ask people to recount such trivial, of, trivial events, about another random day decades ago, they would have no memory at all, precisely because the day was not connected with a famous or infamous event. A flashbulb memory event in recent U.S. history is the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack, attack that resulted in the destruction of the World Trade Center in New York City and severe damage to the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., Many people in the U.S. today can remember a story about what they were doing when they heard about the attack. The vividness of these memories is testimony to the attack's causal impact on their economic actions. At that time, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, the NBER, the U.S. economy had been in a recession since March of 2001, following the 2000 peak in the world stock markets and the subsequent financial crisis and major decline. Right after the September 11, 2001 attacks, in which terrorists crashed commandeered airplanes into symbolically important national targets, there were widespread fears that the recession in the U.S. economy would be prolonged because people choose to stay at home owing to their fear of another such attack. Coming a year after the popping of the 2000 stock market bubble, amidst numerous signs of recession, the terrorist attacks were, quote, the perfect storm for the economy to hit the wall, end quote. But the attacks appear to have had just the opposite effect. In November of 2001, the recession ended, and the U.S. economy almost immediately recovered, making that recession one of the shortest in U.S. history. How might we explain the nation's quick recovery? After the attacks, a narrative took hold that involved a plea from national leaders asking the nation's people to do symbolic things to uphold national confidence. Two weeks after the attack, U.S. President George W. Bush gave a talk to airline workers and to the nation as a whole, quote, and we must stand against terror by going back to work. Wow. Everybody here who showed up for work at this important industry, is making a clear statement that terrorism will not stand, that the evildoers will not be able to terrorize America and our workforce and our people. When they struck, they wanted to create an atmosphere of fear, and one of the great goals of this nation's war is to restore public confidence in the airline industry. It's to tell the traveling public, get on board, do your business around the country. Fly and enjoy America's great destination spots. Get down to Disney World in Florida. Take your families and enjoy life the way we want it to be enjoyed. End quote. 
President Bush also lavished praise on Americans, saying, quote, This is a determined nation, and we are a strong nation. We are a nation based upon fabulous values, end quote. Like a good sports coach, he was encouraging team spirit, both among the airline workers and among the citizenry as a whole. His narrative suggested a script for strong, courageous, inspired behavior. That narrative was expressly designed to encourage the ideas that we are all watched by others and that we must all set an example of courage. Whoa. During the economic recovery, however, most economists did not recognize the flashbulb quality of the September 2001 attacks, which encouraged a contagious constellation of narratives and may have profoundly affected U.S. businesses and the U.S. economy. The Ubiquity of Fake News In attempting to be vivid, storytellers often resort to fiction or fake news, thereby providing amplified tales. The history of narratives shows that fake news is not new. In fact, people have always liked amusing stories, and they spread stories that are suspect to be that they suspect are not true, as for example in urban legends. In fact, people who spread titillating stories without making any clear moral decision whether they are spreading falsehoods or not. Fake news often makes an impression on people because the brain processes that implement reality monitoring are imperfect. According to psychologists and neuroscientists, source monitoring is a difficult process for the brain, which judges sources by their linkages to other memories. Thus, over time, the brain may forget that it once deemed stories unreliable. Also, adeptness in source monitoring differs across individuals, and temporal, diencephalic, and frontal lobe damage in the brain may contribute to extreme defects in source monitoring. As an example, let's look at fake wrestling matches, where wrestlers appear to break the rules and almost kill each other. People seem to derive pleasure from watching a match that others would say is obviously fake and trying to pretend that it is real. A word for this strange phenomenon, kayfabe, appeared in print starting in the 1970s. The fake wrestling match does not proceed as a by-the-rules high school or college wrestling match would. Instead, it includes a number of outrageous story elements. One of the combatants may be flamboyantly evil and or ugly in his near-nakedness, while the other is clean-cut, handsome, and honorable. The bad guy acts cowardly, hides behind the ropes, and slips an in an illegal strike in plain view of the audience when the referee briefly looks away. He tortures the opponent when he is down, and he climbs up high on the ropes and pretends to jump on his opponent's abdomen. The fakery is often so obvious that any observer would see through at least some of it. Spectators sometimes even shout, fake, during a match when the acting is not up to their standards. And yet the match is presented and largely accepted as if it were true. Spectators seem to want it to be possibly true, at least some of the time, and they may pre pretend it is true to stimulate their imaginations. However, as literary theorist Roland Barthes notes, spectators at these matches rarely bet on the outcome as they do in other sports, saying, quote, That would make no sense. Wrestling sustained its originality by all the excesses which make it a spectacle and not a sport, end quote. In other words, at some level, many people enjoy believing the story and do not care about, it factual, about its factuality. 
Fake fighting matches have a long history in many countries, indicating an enduring story. A ProQuest news and newspaper search for fake wrestling shows the phrase dating back to 1890, with a reporter noting that there have been a lot of fake wrestling matches lately. Even in ancient Rome, in the minutes preceding the real gladiatorial combats that sometimes resulted in death, there was a fake combat, Prolucio, that whetted the audience's appetite for the real thing to follow. Prolucio probably resembled modern fake wrestling matches, and in some ways it may even have been more interesting to watch, in that the actors were experienced and skilled in manipulating audiences, and some were celebrities. Much has improved since ancient Romans released lions to maul and kill criminals, runaway slaves, and Christians in the Colosseum. We have established news media with reputations for honesty. The 21st century has seen the birth of fact-checking websites, including AP Fact Check, factcheck.org, politifact.com, snopes.com, usafacts.org, and wikitribune.com. All of these sites have built their reputation by debunking fake news rather than by reporting all sides of a controversy without taking sides, which was once common in the mainstream news media. Unfortunately, most people do not read these fact-checking websites. In addition, their credibility has recently been compromised by fake news designed to harm their reputations, leading some members of the general public to give up the hope of ever finding the real truth. What conclusions can we draw? Given its presence over the centuries and millennia, fake news seems to be a part of the normal human condition. Fake performances, fake stories, and fake heroes are ubiquitous. The fakery is so creative that we cannot view the performances as caused by fundamental economic forces. Instead, the opposite is true. The fakery, in the form of fake narratives, affects economic outcomes. I'm going to read that sentence again. The fakery, in the form of fake narratives, affects economic outcomes. Whew. Evidence on causation from constellations of narratives. In studying narratives from archival data, we may miss the constellation of narratives behind any single aspect of cultural change because we may be able to view only some of the superficial narratives. From our vantage point many decades later, it is like standing on the earth on a partly cloudy night and trying to discern the constellations in the sky above. We certainly will not see some of the stars. In addition, narratives typically come and go over the years, but economic fluctuations are often sudden, as in a financial panic that unfolds over a matter of days. But the seeds of that panic may well have been planted over months or years. Ultimately, the mass of people whose consumption and investment decisions cause economic fluctuations are not very well informed. Most of them do not view or read the news uh, carefully, and they rarely get the facts in any discernible order. And yet, their decisions are the ones that drive aggregate economic activity. It must be the case, then, that attention-getting narratives drive those decisions, often with an assist from celebrities or trusted figures. Once we recognize that newly mutated stories within narrative constellations can cause current economic events, we have made substantial progress. But it is not easy to achieve a secure understanding of how narratives affect the economy. We need to step back first and consider some basic principles, some alluded to in previous chapters, to guide our thinking.
which brings us to the next chapter. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.